Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On March 11th of this year, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan into law, which included a whopping $1.9 trillion in COVID relief spending. One of the most contentious aspects of the bill was the coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds, branded by some as state and local bailouts. A novel idea for how these funds could be used is establishing direct payments to low-income families to address inequalities exacerbated by closed schools and poor remote learning. Here to talk about his idea is a longtime friend of the show, John Bailey. John is a non-resident senior fellow here at AEI and an advisor to the Walton Family Foundation. He previously served in the White House under President George W. Bush. John recently authored a report for AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network titled Education Recovery Benefits, Using Coronavirus State and Local Fiscal Recovery Funds to Address Children's Academic, Social, Emotional, and Mental Health Needs. John, welcome to the report card. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, John, you're really building up a record here. I think this is uh, your your third time on the show. So uh, I, I think you're in the lead so far. And, um, you know, you keep putting out papers like this, and I'm sure you're going to stay there. Uh, now, we're going to get into your idea for these ARP funds in a minute. But I think it's best to start by defining the scope of the problem that your report is trying to address. Kids are behind due to COVID. And some kids are more behind than others. Now, we've talked about COVID learning loss a few times on the show, but, you know, things change over time. I'm wondering if you can give us an update about what we know about where American students are academically. Well, it's a great question. I just want to start by saying, like, there's a lot we don't know. Like, we're only beginning now to see some state assessment results that are getting reported by states. So Tennessee just this week, Texas about two weeks ago. And they generally are painting a picture of, of kids not being, um, being behind a bit. Uh, it depends on grade, it depends on the subject, but and it also depends on um, if kids were lower income, if they were more online than they were in person last year. It seems like kids that were learning online are starting the school year slightly further behind than what their uh, their peers were that might have been in school. But the, those, again, like are just snapshots. I, I think when you get into other areas like social, emotional, mental health, we still don't have great data there. Like the, we have lots of anecdotal uh, stories. We have a few sort of national surveys that the CC, CDC did, but nothing uh, more recent. And I think a, a clearer picture is going to emerge as kids come back to school. They start getting some diagnostic assessments, some screening, and and hopefully, but it it is sort of pointing to uh, a generation of kids that are are starting academically behind and have a lot of catch up to do. Yeah, there's a, there's a long road ahead. Now, the American Rescue Plan wanted to be part of the solution for that long road ahead, and it was huge. The coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds. That's a mouthful. From now on, let's just call them state and local funds. They accounted for about twenty percent of ARP. I mean, that's a lot of money. So tell me a little bit more about these state and local funds, how much money we're talking about, and what did Congress have in mind when they put these in the rescue plan? Great. So, I mean, the the genesis of these funds started over a year ago, and it was when you have to 
teleport yourself back to March of 2020 when states were shutting their economies down and having everyone shelter in place. And the the fear for most of the spring into the summer was that these shutdowns were going to just decimate state budgets. That, um, and that what the governor's in a very bipartisan way, we're asking for, as well as mayors, is that in order to prevent budget cuts, they wanted Congress to help provide some state and local stabilization dollars. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't get into the CARES Act. It didn't get into the December package. And uh, in, eventually, what, what happened is they just packaged $350 billion with a whole bunch of broad, flexible uses as part of the American Rescue Plan. It could be used for budget stabilization. So in states that lost tax revenue or had budget holes, they could use these dollars to fill those holes. But then Congress gave a whole bunch of other eligible uses for it. They said you could use it for your vaccine lotteries to increase the take up of vaccines. You could do COVID testing. You could help uh, with unemployment, rental assistance. There's a whole sort of list of eligible uses to help offset either the economic harms created by COVID or to help with the COVID uh, response and recovery, as well as like filling in these budget holes. And the thing is, is that where states were projecting COVID sort of decimating their budgets, you now have um, about 20, 20 states, 25 states that are actually seeing a surplus. It actually hasn't hurt them nearly as bad as what they were forecasting and expecting. And so in a lot of ways, this $350 billion, instead of filling holes, becomes real catalytic funding. Governors can do all sorts of things with this. And we're seeing governors launch workforce development programs. They're launching infrastructure programs. And so we just wanted to put out, look, look, there's there's an idea here that when schools closed, that actually created economic harms for families. Moms left the workforce. Families had to scrape together resources to help pay for learning pods or tutoring for their kids. They had to provide for therapies for their special needs kids. There was an economic harm that was created by school closures. And there's an academic harm that was created by school closures. And there's a way for governors to use these funds to help offset both of those harms that were created. So let me repeat back what I've heard to make sure I'm catching this. Early on in the pandemic, state and local funds were feared to be going south because there's going to be less income taxes, less sales taxes, just the tax revenue is going to be really down. And it didn't make it into the earlier rounds of funding. And this big $350 billion package was largely thought of, let's make state and local revenues whole. But by that time, we found that a lot of those holes just weren't very deep. So now states have surpluses with these funds. Am I catching this correctly? That's correct. Not all states. I mean, some states did have pretty deep budget holes, but sure. a lot of them are seeing surpluses. And again, the broad use of these funds are hugely catalytic. It's also the the, the way these funds go out, some of them, a, a, a large percentage of them go to governors, but there's another percentage of the funds that go to county executives and to mayors. And again, same sort of flexibility. Mayors can set up all sorts of COVID testing programs. They could set up tutoring programs for their kids. They can do rental assistance. It's so broad in terms of the flexibility that's given uh, to these leaders to decide how to best use the funds to serve their communities. All right. So let's focus in on education because uh, that's m most of what you're writing about here. How exactly can these dollars be used for education? And are, are there any ways that the funds can't be used for particular education uses? Yeah. I mean, it, it, th this is where it is so different from those of us who have worked in education policy. We're, we're used to the U.S. Department of Ed and to Congress putting in 
really tight guardrails. Like they give very prescriptive, here are the eligible uses of funds and you can't go outside of those, those bounds. None of that really sort of exists here. It, it says that yes, states and mayors can use these funds to address education needs within their communities, particularly communities that were disproportionately impacted by COVID. And then it gives examples, suggestions, but those aren't binding. And it gives examples of out of school time. It gives examples of tutoring. It gives examples of summer school and enrichment programs, but those are examples. It doesn't say what can't be used. Literally, the only area that uh, these funds cannot be used is offsetting uh, tax revenue. So you can't use these funds to enact like a tax credit per se. And for some states that have um, that have been using uh, tax credits as a way of providing as assistance uh, in the form of scholarships for kids, these funds cannot be used uh, in that sort of way. But right now, it is, it's massively broad and flexible. And here's the thing, too, is that there's not necessarily a really detailed application process. Like a governor doesn't have to say, here are all the different ways I'm going to use these funds for tutoring. They just say, we're going to use the funds for tutoring. And if for some reason they're going out of the bounds of what Treasury feels like is not permissible, Treasury claws back those funds. So it's a very different process than what we're used to in education, which is you, you stay within these tightly defined bounds that the U.S. Department sort of outlines, and then you apply for the funds before you get permission to use it. It's almost the opposite over a Treasury. So the typical rules just don't apply here. First of all, a lot of money. Second of all, not many guardrails to, to use it. And you can kind of pull the trigger if you are a, a governor or a mayor or county executive in these places and you've got this surplus funds from ARP. So your idea is basically... How about we use these as direct payments to low-income families? Lay it out for me. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is to take a mechanism that the federal government, both Republicans and Democrats, have used as a response throughout the pandemic in its direct cash benefits or other directed benefits. So you, you have direct cash benefits that have gone quickly to families to help them with flexible funding to address their food needs or housing insecurity or, or any, any sort of needs that they're facing at that moment. But then you also have directed benefits. So a lot of states quickly stood up pandemic electronic benefit transfer, PEBT, uh, benefits as a way of providing food support for kids who normally would get uh, free reduced meals at school, breakfast and lunch. This was a way of giving families on a EBT card flexible dollars that they could use for food insecurity. The the idea is like, well, again, if parents and households or uh, in low-income families have faced economic hardship uh, as a result of school closures, why not give them some targeted funding to help offset that economic hardship, to help them with the childcare that has prevented moms from going back into the workforce, to help them, a lot of low-income families want tutoring for their kids. They're willing to pay $500 a month, according to some survey research from EdChoice and Morning Consult. They just don't have the money for it. So why not give them some flexible dollars that they can use to address either the academic needs or the social, emotional, and mental health well-being of, uh, of their kids? But the, the idea is that it's an it, it's emergency benefit. It's time limited. So it's using these dollars and it's targeted towards the families that have been impacted the most. And so when you say that the families that would be impacted the most, I've heard low-income families, but who would you direct these payments to, or, or, or in your argument, who do you think should receive these payments? So I, again, I think 
it, it, it's rare, but you have a blank canvas for, for states to define what need is here. And need can be defined in a bunch of different ways. It could be purely low-income students. You could imagine a governor using this as a trigger mechanism, similar to PEBDT, which is there's a national health emergency that gets triggered. You can imagine a governor saying, look, if a school closes for longer than two weeks, that triggers this emergency benefit for children so that there's some cash assistance going to those families. You could imagine this being eligible populations also being defined as areas of high COVID rates and incidents and hospitalizations. So there's all sorts of different ways a governor could sort of tar um, define eligibility here. I think and what we make the case for is that it's should be very much focused on low-income uh, families, but also those that are disproportionately impacted. And the impact could be from school closures, the amount of days that a school has been closed. It could be if the mom has, or dad has had to leave the workforce because of childcare responsibilities. But there's a lot of different ways to sort of set the, the trigger for this and the eligibility. All right. So that all makes sense. Let's talk about how much money are we talking about? I mean, there's a lot of money, and you could also argue there's a lot of need spread across the students that were affected by the pandemic. I mean, how much money are, are we talking about? Understanding that, you know, there's flexibility, but how, how much should these funds be such that they could do some good? Yeah, so it's a great question. And again, huge flexibility here. You could imagine a governor setting up uh, an education recovery benefit that just focuses on tutoring. And maybe that's you know, based on what we're seeing from the survey data, maybe that's $500 or $600 a month. Maybe that's enough to cover tutoring. If you wanted to go a little bit higher, that gets you tutoring or learning pods. We've seen some states as part of their first round of education funding that set up direct port for scholarships target around the $1,000 to $5,000 per child. We've seen in just the school choice world, education savings account dollars as much as $10,000 to cover tuition and therapies for special needs students and instructional materials. So, you know, I think you could imagine a benefit being anywhere from $500 all the way up to $10,000. It just depends a little bit on the range of assistance that a governor wants or a mayor wants to help their parents with. Just tutoring, if it's childcare, or if it's actually paying for tuition and other types of instructional supports for families that are, are just looking for other options right now, whether it's homeschooling or for a school that is actually open and for in-person learning for their kids. And this would give them the support to, to uh, secure that for their kids. Okay, so let's talk about timing on this, because... These funds aren't a revenue stream. They're more like a, a, a revenue lake. And when they're, when they're used up, right, uh, you know, th there's not more to fill this bucket. So are these one-time payments? Are they ongoing and time-limited? How should uh, governors or mayors think about the, the potential to use these funds when, at some point, they're going to be gone? Governors and mayors have four years in which to spend these funds, but it's, and we try to make this clear in the paper, you know, this is one of the, the tensions of creating a benefit here is that you, you have to clearly communicate to the parents that this is time limited, whether governors say, gosh, this is just for the duration of the, an emergency period, as long as schools are closed, or whether it's for the period of a year, or at most for four years, that unless governors have, uh, and mayors have state and local funds to continue these benefits, there is a funding cliff uh, at the end of this. And then, John, do you have any idea of the demand side that we're looking at, right? I mean, so if we made these available, or if a governor decided to make it available to a subset of uh, students and families in his state, what do we know about how 
parents and students might actually use the money. Do we have any information on where the demand is for what these funds might go to? We have a couple different sources of data for estimates here. First of all, EdChoice and Morning Consult have been doing amazing polling of parents, uh, including targeting a, a specific poll for Black parents to get a sense of what their needs are and to get a sense of, uh, are they seeking tutoring? Are they seeking learning pods? Are they seeking homeschooling or alternative forms of learning? And you do see high demand, including uh, from low-income families. We saw this through some Titan Partners research. Uh, it's more of a market research firm, but they did some polling of parents and found out that a lot of low-income parents shifted over to private tuition for their kids because they wanted a place for their kids that was open or because the parents themselves needed to, to find a way to get their kids into an in-person setting because they themselves had to work. For many of us that could quickly sort of adjust to Zoom and, and Zoom meetings throughout the pandemic, there's a lot of low-income families that that just was not an option. They were, they were needed as essential workers. They needed to go into an office or work a shift. So they right. needed to find childcare for their families. And so what you're seeing is, is a high demand, but often they don't have the resources in which to uh, pursue those type of options. Right. And so we, we can't quantify that uh, entirely because we just don't have great, uh, great data. But from some of the survey data that we have, it shows that there's at least some interest in high demand there. So, John, this is a, a, a direct cash program that you're talking about. Let's give cash to, to families to use. Why wouldn't states and localities just give this money to public schools? Well, first of all, we are giving a lot of money to public schools right now. I mean, the 120 plus billion, but if you tag on to that, the three other packages before it, there's a lot of money going to public schools. This is not saying that we shouldn't be funding public schools to help them with academic acceleration and help them with SEL programs, but it's very much the same sort of mantra that we've been doing. We, we have never made this an either or debate at any point in the pandemic. We've said, Yes, we should give direct cash benefits to families. Yes, we should do a child tax credit to help families with offsetting the needs of their kids. And we should also invest in schools, hospitals, and, uh, and other. It is very much the same argument here. This is complementary to whatever it is that we're investing uh, with schools and whatever schools are doing with those ARP funds that they're receiving. So that makes sense. Let's talk about the, the mechanics of the program a little bit. I mean, are we on uncharted waters here or are there sort of existing programs that could serve as a good model for making these direct education payments to families? Yeah, I, again, I think there's a lot of lessons we can draw from from past state experimentation with directed benefit services. PEBT is a good example. Like that's one that most states have had to set up over the last year to provide food assistance to families that were shut out of their schools and couldn't access free and reduced lunch. There's some infrastructure there with the cards and with the way those accounts work that can be used. You've had just an explosion of states passing uh, education savings accounts programs over this last year. That's an infrastructure that, that can be used. You had some states as part of their first CARES Act use some of their, their governor's funding to set up uh, scholarships or other types of targeted assistance. There's some lessons in infrastructure that can be used there too. There, a couple states are set up digital wallets for families to help support their state uh, school choice programs. So I think there's a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of lessons we can draw from uh, those various programs to kind of help set something up here to work quickly and efficiently. And also, and again, in that targeted way to support low-income families. John, I asked a minute ago about why not just give this money to public schools? And you responded, well, we've already given them a, a, a lot of money as part of your answer. And, you know, I know that. I just actually released a report for AEI showing that, 
you know, a huge percentage of the $190 billion in, in ESSER funds that Congress sent to states and, and school districts probably actually won't go to reopening or recovery or, or things that are actually directly related to COVID. It seems like the COVID relief pot for education is sort of already overflowing. So in that sense, you know, why would it make sense for these state and local funds to also go to education, even if they go directly to parents? A couple of different reasons. One is, you know, schools are using their ARP funds in a bunch of different ways. Like some are needing it for COVID testing. Some need it for vaccine clinics at their schools. A lot of school districts that we're seeing are offering it for bonuses for their teachers. You know, all each of those are sort of worthy debates and in, in, in possibly sort of uses of the funds. What's not helping is that it's not addressing those economic hardships that families have faced over the last year, that a, a mom who's left the workforce in order to stay home with their kids that had to learn remotely has suffered enormous economic harms. And these are funds that can help offset some of those salary losses. It can be used to help offset the costs that they needed to buy a computer or to buy online services. For kids that are struggling with mental health needs, we're having such a, a, a amazing sort of conversation and discussion about that as a country right now. You know, families need therapies for their kids that often are not getting provided by schools. And these are dollars that can help you uh, use to offset some of those costs. And, and again, it's complementary to what a school is doing, or um, it, it's meant to fill in the, the gaps there, not necessarily replace it entirely. John, your report outlines this idea very clearly. But one question I have is about the political feasibility of actually getting these funds directly into the hands of families. I mean, how likely is it that a plan like this gets enacted by governors or mayors? And have any states or localities actually tried something like this already with state and local relief funds? So it's a great question. I mean, part of it is that governors and mayors haven't been thinking about the education uses of these dollars. Like, you know, the the where their mindsets were is, gosh, this is going to be ways for us to do some infrastructure. We're going to do some workforce. Governors trying to sign up and get more people to engage with uh, and sign up for the vaccines. They're trying lotteries. That's where their mindsets have been. We, we just wanted to give them another sort of thought about, hey, here's some another way for you to use those dollars. Uh, some of the conservative governors that were experimenting with this as part of the first round of uh, GEARS funding coming out of CARES Act, that got shut off by Congress. But this provides another source of funds that those governors can use to help further experimentation with those type of programs. I think actually you're going to find some Democrat and progressive governors that are going to be interested in this too. In, in part because we're seeing such hesitancy amongst families for returning to school, especially sort of Black and, and Hispanic families that are very nervous about sending their kids to school, catching COVID, and bringing it home to their families. And they want other options. And that's why you're seeing this huge increase in Black families going to homeschooling. It's why you see a lot of families demanding an online option for this year. And this gives those governors a chance to provide some additional assistance to those families to help them uh, with their education of their kids and with the therapies and other supports for their kids. Uh, and what looks to be, because of the Delta variant, another tumultuous year coming up. So let me push a little bit more on that uh, red-blue divide here. I mean, I get it. This idea probably has, you know, pretty good support in red states where private school choice policies get traditionally positive reception. Okay. Uh, it seems the case to be made in blue states is, is harder and different. So if you're talking to a blue state governor 
or you're pitching this to a, a mayor of a, of a state that tends to have more sort of blue politics. What do you think is the cleanest way to make that case to them? Well, one, what progressives have argued since day one of, uh, of the pandemic is the need for direct cash assistance to families that could be spent flexibly and quickly. And that's that's where you got direct cash benefits that went out from treasuries, checks to low-income families. It's the push by the administration right now around the child tax credit. And, and there we don't, we don't try to micromanage how parents used uh, their, their direct checks. We, didn't, we don't micromanage what they do with the funding that they receive from the child tax credit. This is in that same vein. It's just providing flexible dollars to low-income families that have, have suffered as a result of school closures and trusting. If we trust them to use their treasury checks, surely we should be able to trust them to be able to use these funds to help their kids in whatever way those families see best. And so I, I think that the, the pitch there is that this is for progressives. This is a, a policy mechanism you've used and have promoted and argued is needed. It's just now applying it in, uh, in an education setting and targeting to the populations that they say are, are, again, so desperately need additional assistance. And that tends to be a lot of minority families, black and brown families that have been disproportionately impacted by remote learning and then have disproportionately been impacted by COVID and disproportionately lost income as a result of job loss and, and the changing economy. And so this is a way of providing direct targeted assistance to those families quickly. So, John, this is a, a good idea. I think. But let's say that state governors, mayors uh, reject this brilliant idea for direct payments. They still got a bunch of money out there and they still have education needs that they could use it to address. What do you think is the next best use of the funds for education purposes if these direct payment options weren't taken up? No, I mean, the, you know, you could think about, you know, an education recovery benefit helps on the demand side, but you could also imagine governors using some of these funds to do the supply side. Like maybe governors want to set up a statewide tutoring program that can be made available free of charge for, for families. We're seeing like, at least by my count, like two to 300 school districts that are offering online options to their families going forward. It's probably more than that, but no one's really sort of tracking that. Um, but there is a little bit of craziness to sort of saying like, why does every single school district in a state need to offer Algebra 1 or uh, this type of reading course? Like there might be some ways uh, for states to build out a catalog of state options for families to, to choose from on a course choice basis or to establish their own sort of statewide uh, virtual school. You can imagine funds being used for that too. I could imagine just because of, again, some of the social, emotional, and the mental health and well-being needs of kids, governors using these funds to scale up telemedicine to provide uh, additional screening and supports for kids as they're coming back into the school year and using telemedicine as a way to quickly scale those services so I, I think there's a bunch of a bunch of different ways. And then, I mean, the, the other thing is like, we were just talking about the Delta variant. COVID testing is going to be so important this year, both to give assurance to parents and teachers that uh, in-person learning is safe, but it's also going to be probably one of our first defenses um, to, to catching cases. And, and it's probably our way out of not just quarantining kids, which can just lead to entire classes and schools being learning remotely for 10 or 14 days. Testing is going to be important. Some of these funds can be used for that as a way of keeping schools open as much as possible for this fall. Well, John, it's a good idea when we find ourselves in a weird place with a lot of money and looking for good uses for it. So thanks for putting it out there. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, John Bailey. We'll include a link to John's recent AEI report in the show notes. I also want to thank our producers, the veteran, Matt Rice, and the neophyte, Wesley Armstrong. They make this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your questions, comments, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.